Hi there, and welcome to our podcast, Art City Amsterdam. From Rembrandt to Dumas and from Leijsen to McQueen, Amsterdam has long been home to some of the world's most important artists. In our podcast, we will provide you a taste of art in this remarkable city. Together with our special guests, we will take you on a walk through the art scene of Amsterdam. We, your hosts, Rubia Balsam and Joost Bosland, speak to artists, curators, politicians and collectors about what they love about the city. Whether you're a longtime resident or planning your first visit, this podcast will inspire you to explore new and familiar corners of the Amsterdam art world. Today we are at the Stedelijk Museum and we're thrilled to introduce our next guest, Rijn Bols, director of the Stedelijk. Born in the Netherlands, he accomplished an impressive international career path as an art historian, curator and director. From director to the Bundeskunsthalle in Bonn, to head of exhibitions museum Boymans van Beuningen, director of the Migros Museum of Contemporary Art in Zurich, and at the, also the Dutch Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, which he curated in 2003. He is now back in Amsterdam. He is fascinated by the enigma of life and he is known for his deep knowledge of art, his exciting artistic vision, and he has a distinguished record of fostering connections and collaborations. Inclusion and diversity are high on his agenda, all of which we will talk about during this interview. So, Ryan, thanks for having us. How, how are you? Well, I'm quite well, I must say. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I like Amsterdam and I'm very happy to be back in Amsterdam. So what should be wrong apart from some, uh, let's say, some minor things? <laughs> and, and we understand, we have to get this one out of the way. We understand you're a big soccer fan. What tournaments do you follow? And, and most importantly, what is your team? Well, I follow national leagues uh, mostly, and especially also the Dutch league, but also the German league, also the British league. My, my favorite team is not an Amsterdam team. That is something I have to admit, and I've, I've told several people also, and I'm also in, a, in an app group here in Amsterdam, which is called Comrades from O20. And that mm -hmm. means people who know, who's calling Amsterdam O20, know that I must be a fan of Feyenoord Rotterdam. Oh gosh, you're, you're admitting this on the record <laughs> Amsterdam today. is 020 for Rotterdam people and Rotterdam is 010. That's the code for the telephone code, the original telephone code of both cities. Yeah, I'm a Feyenoord Rotterdam fan since long time and I watch Ajax Amsterdam also, but soccer is very important. So I watch it, uh, I try and watch it as much as possible and uh, especially in the weekends. You say soccer is very important? What, what makes soccer important? It's, it's a lot of emotions and it's a lot of, and when you're a fan of Feyenoord Rotterdam, you're a fan of a team which has some problems also every now and then. Somebody said once, it's, it's, it, it's not fun to be a fan of Feyenoord Rotterdam because they have their depressions, they have their crisis. And also right now they're in a crisis again. So it's, uh, it's something, but, but you need this also. You need, uh, you need this kind of, uh, waves in which things are good and things are bad. And, and soccer is like life in that sense. Maybe also to, to understand for our listeners, perhaps the Stedelijk and soccer probably doesn't really go hand in hand, but the Stedelijk is also centered here at the Museum Square, also one of the, the, the places where we actually um, celebrate most of the soccer competitions, uh, like Ajax perhaps. When rec reckoning and thinking about the Museum Square, what kind of importance has it to you as well? Well, the Museum Square is probably three of the most important museums of, of Holland are, are centered. 
Of course, the museum, I, I, I love the museum plan as it was, with the street going directly through it, because it was made out of those stones, which made a great sound when you, when you were driving on those stones uh, with a car. It was like a racetrack. A short, it was called the shortest racetrack in Holland, I think, the, the, the museum plan. So now we're finally opening up the world and I think hopefully the museum soon here in the Netherlands as well. So what do you wish for when we talk about the tourism season which is coming? And also I would say flourishing of the city. Well, we live, we live also from tourists. The, the tourists are an economic necessity also for a museum like our museum. So I love tourists, that is something I have to say. But I don't love all tourists and that's also something else I have to say. And I think also the mayor of Amsterdam has her opinion about what kind of tourists we would like to have in the city and what kind of tourists we don't want to have in the city. Sometimes it's wonderful when the city is empty, like during a pandemic situation. But in terms of these economic questions, it's, it's still important to get them. And, and, and as a museum, you're a home for tourists. And what is very important that as a museum of modern and contemporary art, you get the local public by the exhibitions you're making, by the temporary exhibitions. You get the national public by, by the temporary exhibitions you're making. But you also get the tourists by the collection you're showing. And they come once in a lifetime to the museum and they want to see the collection and it's very important for us. And talking about that, so this year the Stedelijk will treat the audience to an exhibition of Bruce Nauman. Could you describe your first encounter with his work and why this moment was actually defining for your career? In the well, actually arts? Bruce Nauman was probably the most important experience in my life, which made it clear to me that I should study the history of modern and contemporary art. I saw in the beginning of the 90s, no, the mid, uh, sorry, the, the mid-80s, I must say, the mid-80s of the last century, I saw an exhibition in Antwerp, an, uh, an outdoor exhibition in the Middelheim Park, and there was this piece by Bruce Nauman, which was a cotton steel circle lying on the floor, and it was a complete enigma for me. And it was an enigma, and I wanted to know more about this enigma. And I got very interested in Bruce Nauman. And I remember the first time I met Bruce Nauman, is also the last time I met him, I must admit, that was in 1986. And in 1986 I was a student and I was doing a traineeship at the museum in Switzerland at the Hallefinoi Kunst in Schaffhausen. And then the, we had a loan from that museum to the Bruce Nauman show at the Kunsthalle Basel. And I went there with the director and we were assisting in putting up this, this work, this musical chairs work. And then I met Bruce Nauman also. And uh, there's still some photo in between my papers. I should uh, grab it uh, from there. And I, I don't know if it's still there, but it should be there, in which I see myself as a student together with, with Bruce Nauman. And that's something I cherish, I must say. And besides Bruce Nauman, are there any other artists which do inspire you? Well, the first artist I remember, the first artist, the first uh, modern and contemporary artist I remember, but this is like a lot of children remember that, I, I think. A lot of people remember that from their childhood is Tangeli in the Stedelijk Museum. I remember that from the 60s when I went with my parents to the, to the Stedelijk and that my first impressions go back to Tangeli works. So we've, we've tried to work out when you actually first arrived in Amsterdam. It must have been the late 70s, early 80s. Do, do you remember the year? I remember. It was uh, 1978. It was on a Monday morning and the Sunday before the Dutch became Euro champion. 
They won the Euro in, in Championship, the in, in the soccer championship in uh, 1978 against the former Soviet Union. And, and you came to study at the University of Amsterdam. Could you describe the city, the climate in the city yeah. and at the school that you encountered? I, I came from the countryside, from the north of Holland, and I came to Amsterdam, to the University of Amsterdam, and I started to study Dutch language and literature. And it was still Marxist people walking from the uh, premises of the university. It was still like people with beards, people with working trousers, people... It was the, it was the last days of of the hippie years of Amsterdam, and it was the last years, and I, I saw that changing over the years, I studied here in Amsterdam, that all of a sudden from a Marxist university, it became almost like a neoliberal kind of situation. It, it was changing rapidly, I must say. So you arrived in 78, and, and you graduated in 1988. Yeah, long time later. Yeah. Suggest you did a lot of other things during that period. I, what, I what did were some. You involved with? I did some other things. I, I did uh, quite a lot of writing. I was also involved in a, in an art magazine, which was a magazine being founded by uh, students at the University of Amsterdam, art history students, and I changed completely in I think in about 1982 or 83 when I changed from Dutch language and literature to art history. And I did some other things, and I curated an exhibition in 1986 or 87, and I did this traineeship in Switzerland, and was also working a bit then afterwards for this museum director from a distance. So, do you remember your first visit to the Stedelijk? My first visit must have been in the 60s, somewhere around 68 or something. I was with my parents and with my sisters, and we lived in the countryside about one hour from Amsterdam, and we went to Amsterdam about twice a year in the 60s and the 70s. And then we went shopping, and we always went to the Stedelijk also. For my parents, the Stedelijk was the, the place to go. At least one of those two times a year, I think, we went to the Stedelijk. And I, I remember it very well, and I remember walking past the new old wing of, of the old new wing of the museum, the glass house, which was there still and which uh, disappeared. And I remember, I remember the building, I remember the restaurant and uh, the apple bar, uh, and I especially remember the, the tangly pieces, which were also on show there. And which make, made quite an impression. It did, but this is what, what happens to a lot of children. <laughs> So then in 1991, you, you left Amsterdam. Was there a particular reason you, you went I, away? I got a job offer. I got a job offer, and I was living in Amsterdam then for 13 years, and already since longer, I wanted to leave Amsterdam. I, I got a bit bored in Amsterdam. I had the feeling this city is quite a happy city. This is quite, uh, everybody, everybody likes where he is, but there is no uh, need to think about something new anymore. And I wanted to go to Rotterdam, but I didn't succeed in going to Rotterdam at that period. And then I, I got a phone call from Zurich if I wanted to come to work at that museum where I worked as a trainee in Schaffhausen, Hall of Kunst, and at the same time, being paid by Migros, which is the biggest retailer company from Switzerland and who have a, an art collection by themselves. And then I said, after some discussions at home, I said, yes, let's go there. And then except for a few years at Boymans, I think about six years in Rotterdam, you spent 
three decades speaking German, working in Switzerland and Germany. Not three decades, uh, 22 years. In 22 years, 22 all right, years, 22 yeah. years. Yeah. Did you follow what, what happened in the happy, boring city of Amsterdam during that period? I always followed what happened in Amsterdam, but uh, in a way, I remember the 10 years I was in Switzerland from 91 to 2001, I remember that Amsterdam was still like, and Holland was still like, uh, like paradise for me in a way. I liked it very much in Switzerland, but I always tried to educate the Swiss in terms of open-mindedness and in terms of tolerance and in terms of thinking in a, in a progressive way. And then I returned to Holland in 2001 and everything was different. Holland was not the most tolerant country anymore. It was not the most forward-looking country anymore. It was the beginning of populism in Holland. The time of Pim Fortuyn came. It was a shock to me when I came back to Holland in 2001 and Pim Fortuyn was in television. Yeah. It was a real shock so, at your surface. About 20 years later, what do you think about the climate at the moment? The climate of the moment is, uh, I mean, populism is everywhere in a way. But still, I like the period now better than before. Probably there is no shock anymore for me. But I think Dutch society kind of radicalized in that sense. And you see that especially when you have a look at the Twitter accounts of people. You see it more in Holland than in some other countries. And I spent the last 12 years in Germany, and I must say, the way the Germans Germans were able to cope with populism. The, the way Merkel was able to cope with populism was not by looking for um, to integrate populistic, populistic jargon in the own jargon, but like still keeping it, keeping it away from the rest of politics in a way, by, by ignoring it in a way. Do you consider it to have an impact also in the, I would say, the exhibitions you have programmed so far? Well, for instance, the exhibition I did for the Dutch Pavilion in Venice in 2003 was directly the consequence of the shock I felt when I came back to Holland two years before and I was confronted with populism. It was called We Are The World. The artist hated this title. Five, five artists who were working in Holland, uh, Erik van Lieshout, Jan van Heeswijk, Meshach Gaba, Alicia Framis, and Carlos Amorales. They hated the title, but it was all about uh, about the quality of an intercultural, uh, or let's say in, in, in old-fashioned uh, terms, like a multicultural situation in, in Dutch art education. But I, what I think is this was not your first show you, you personally initiated when you started here as a director, wasn't it? When I started at Stedelijk, the first show I initiated was the exhibition on Ulai which is still up at the Stedelijk, and, and, and some other exhibitions. Uh, the one I brought with me, which I was supposed to do in, in, in Germany, is a show which will be on show at the Stedelijk a bit later. That is Hito Steil. Hito Steil was the first idea I came with when I came to Amsterdam, in a way. And, and if we're taking Hito and Ulai, why, why would those two artists be important for you to start with? I wanted Hito specifically also because to me she is probably the most, the most institutional critical artist uh, you can imagine in, in the current situation and because Hito has a way of, has, let's say, uh, a way of using the media in, in an extremely contemporary way and in the way which uh, she is the one who, 
who deals with uh, things like game culture, etc., etc. And Ulay, I wanted to show because I was looking for an artist with an international profile, but who had this very important connection with Amsterdam. And Ulay lived in Amsterdam for 40 years. Ulay was the counterpart of Marina Abramovic for for 10 years. And I did, a, I did a retrospective show with Marina in, in, in Germany. And uh, Ulay was also this kind of artist who was dealing very much with gender questions in the 60s and 70s, like, like more artists in that period, and which was for me important to show on a new actual kind of level. And later this year, you're opening a show with Remy Jungerman, who's yeah. another guest on, on this podcast. What, what excites you about that show? What are you looking forward to? I very much like the work of Remy. Like it shows the connections between the different continents. And it, it's, got a, it's got, in a formal way, and in the way he used different motives, you see the whole connections with his West African references, with his uh, Surinamese winty forms and, and, and materials, and with the, the Dutch rigid, the style and, and, and other modernist kind of references. And he brings together this, this whole idea of diaspora, of people from Ghana being made to slaves, then brought to Suriname, and then the Surinamese diaspora to Holland. So he formed also this group called Wakaman. Yeah. So can we consider them perhaps a new movement within the arts in the Netherlands? I think so, yeah, and uh, Wakaman is something very important to me, and as you may know, probably also I hired a new staff member, Charles Landvreugd, who was also a member of Wakaman, of this exhibition, which was on show at Tent in Rotterdam, and I think in 2006, and Charles is our new head of research and curatorial practice, and together with him and together with other curators here, we also developed something on the idea of Wakaman for a new collection display, which we open uh, in July this year. So Wakaman will be revitalized also in a way here at the Stedelijk. I'm very curious about this because I consider it to be very exciting, uh, this movement as well. It's exciting. It's important also in terms of uh, self-esteem and also in terms of thinking broader than just about the normal way we think about it. Yeah, yeah and talking about perhaps thinking outside the box and also going a path forward. So what is it about the vision for the museum for the coming years? Because I think this question has been asked uh, in many interviews and you keep emphasizing that it's a group effort and that you're learning and listening a lot. So I won't ask the same question again, but what do you think, what should you be excited or what are you excited about when talking about the Stedelijk for the coming years? There's, there's more things uh, for the Stedelijk I, and I wouldn't mention it in one sentence. There is, of course, we want that, at the Stedelijk to become a much more multivocal institution. That's one thing. We want to be an, an institution in which multivocality, not only in terms of, uh, of the countries people come from, not only in terms of ethnicity, not only in terms of gender, but also in, in the way we think also formally about art. The museum should be, I, I like to build tension in a museum. I like to bring differences together and I like to, I like to, to make bridges in between things which probably you don't think at the beginning that they should belong together. 
Um, we are looking for new tension in the, in, in the state look. And this tension comes out of the multivocal perspective, comes out of the, the way we also reshape the museum in a way that we will change the, the logic of the exhibition spaces and of the exhibition displays in the museum. We want to make the museum into a more discursive museum, into a museum in which public program will play after the pandemic a more important role than before, or again an important role. We want uh, to use the museum as a, as a tool also to think about society. That means that we will also have specific interest for art with, uh, with, a, with societal references, so to say. We will also be interested in art which has an activist potential, specifically in these days. Also because we think, and I think, that also more historical art in this, in this museum, like uh, for instance, at, at the best example is Malevich, which I always still think is an artist with an extremely activist and radical potential. And I want to see that also back in, uh, in what we are showing today. And we want to create a space inside the space, inside the museum, which could be a more vibrant uh, space, maybe something which is not a successor in the real sense, but also a new interpretation of something which used to be the Bureau Amsterdam here in Amsterdam. So one thing you've been doing since you've arrived in Amsterdam is, is hiring some new people at the museum. You've brought in Adam Chimchik and Yvette Mutumba as curators at large. You mentioned Landfrucht, and now recently you've appointed Vincent van Velsen as the photography curator. Van Velsen in particular has been very critical of the museum in the past. How, what do you see the roles of these, these people that you've brought in to be, and are you bringing in more people in the next months or years? There's different things why I brought in those people. First of all, I wanted uh, some more view from outside. I wanted some distant views, and Adam and uh, Yvette are uh, two persons who are able to bring this. Adam Shimshik has a very broad global view, specifically because of his documenta curatorship in 2017. He knows the world, he knows the global scene. Yvette is somebody who I uh, extremely respect as uh, somebody who has a very clear view on decolonization, but from a different point of view than she doesn't have it from an Anglo-Saxon point of view, which is something we look at sometimes too often, I have the feeling. And next to Yvette, I, I hired, uh, for instance, uh, Vincent van Velsen and Charles Landvreugd, to also have the decolonization view from inside, from within, from the, from the situation here in Holland. I also hired Vincent because we had a lot of conversations and I have the feeling that I need his critical position also to, to make some real changes at, at this museum. When I started to work here, I, I said quite often, we will be in a period of evolution, evolution of the museum, of the Stedelijk. But the more and more I'm here, and the more and more you're thinking about it, I think that we are, are getting more into a revolution.
And do you think it's unfair to say that it's also very clever to bring some of the biggest critics inside the organization? I think it's clever, but it's a risk also, of course. <laughs> and I mean, we all know that Vincent is very critical, but also Adam is a very, Adam Shimshik is also a very critical curator. And also Yvette is a critical curator. She reads our texts on the website and tells me that we have to write them differently. We are still communicating too often as a state like that we are writing art history. It's not art history what we are showing here. It's histories of art. It's stories of art. It's, we are working on narratives, but we, we can't have the ambition that we are, the, are, are normative in the way that we are showing art history as art history. That's something we have to get rid of because there are too many stories untold in the museum. Does it has to do something a little bit also with the International Council of Museums, which they are attempting to redefine museum? Sure. I'm, I'm a big fan of the, the new definition of, of the museum, which is probably not so much a definition, but more like a statement or, a, or more like a program. And I think that's also what it should be in this, in, in, in this time. We, we don't believe in perfect truth anymore. We don't believe in absolute truth anymore. So why make a definition for something which should be as, as flexible as a museum? So more see it as, a, as an ideology, the museum, and put some, some more ideological input and, and some more flexibility input in, in, a new, in, in this new sentence, which we could call a definition or not a definition. So perhaps for our audience who don't know the new definition of the, the museum, could you describe it in a nutshell? I, I, I don't know it by heart, but the new definition makes the museum much more as a place in which discursive action is taking and as a place in which things can change and as a place in which reflection takes place. And it's not only a bringing together of objects in a fixed situation. The new Museum idea is a museum is, is an idea in which also visions of society can be brought in on a, on an independent level, and also that engagement with the community is also very important. And major, uh, engagement with community is extremely important, and that's something which we also need to find much more at the at the Stedelijk Museum, I would say. So, and talking about uh, community engagement, I'm also one of the ambassadors of the Young Stedelijk Museum, so I'm not a matter not very objective. But could you tell us more a little bit about the importance of these kind of programs like Blick Openers or Young Stedelijk to engage the community and, and for future generations, of course? There's an enormous importance of these groups of people. It, it's about building a fan base at the end. It's about building um, engagement at the end. The old stedelijk was a stedelijk in which people uh, thought about thought of the stedelijk as some kind of, of home for them, where they used to come not day after day, but every week or every month, and they sat at the restaurant and they worked in the library. They they strolled through the through the museum, and they looked at the other visitors and they and they wanted to be part of it. And this feeling is gone in, in some way after we have a new museum since 2012 and after we had a long period of, of not being on the track as a museum. And I have the feeling that we can not go back to the old nostalgic situation again, but we have to think about uh, building engaged new fan bases on other levels and on different levels. 
we're not a one-faceted museum anymore. We, we should think much more multifaceted, and that's why we need different groups of people around us, circling around us and thinking and reflecting with us, and sometimes being a bit critical even also. And it seems to be working. Ruby and I actually met through Young Stedelijk, so this, oh, yeah, this yeah. podcast is a yeah. direct sort of byproduct. <laughs> if, if, if somebody phoned you tomorrow, somebody with infinite wealth phoned you tomorrow and offered you a blank check, what would be your dream project for the museum? What would be top of your list? It's a difficult question because there are a lot of dream projects and dream projects change also quite often. I would at first hand, I think I would, I would very much think of collection also, I must say, because I think there's a whole lot to do with the collection still. When we want to be a more multivocal institution, we need to invest quite a lot in, in, in collection and we are never going to be able to repair which, uh, what, what we forgot in the past, but we will be able to, uh, to give signals, to send signals and to make clear in, in what direction we, we would like to go. And, and for collecting, you need some, you need infinite wealth. So in a way, it's a very old fashioned answer to the question. Yeah. With what would you do? You'd buy art with the money. In a way, I would buy art because I think, I think development of collection is something extremely important for a museum. And this is sometimes a bit neglected in museums. And sometimes people think, yeah, it's only about buying, it's only about capitalizing a collection. But it's, in, in a public museum, it's something different. So are there any artists on that wish list? There are certainly artists on that, on that wish, wish Could list. Could you provide us some names? No, I don't want to do that. I mean, uh, my first artist on the wish list was El Anatsui, and we were able to find the finances to buy this. Does the museum own Hito Style? Hito Style, we have some works in the collection. We have some works in the collection together with the Van Appen Museum. It's shared ownership, which I like very much uh, with those kind of works. But I can imagine that, that there will be more female artists perhaps on that list. Yeah. I'm thinking about the uh, current An artist collection. who is on that list also is, for instance, Faith Ringgold. Mm. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we ask ask often enough, we might slowly get more names out of you. We'll, we'll, <laughs> sneak, we'll sneak it into the rest of the conversation. So in talking about Stedelijk, part of a very broad and also layered art scene here. So what is the greatest strength of this Amsterdam art scene at the moment? The strength begins begins at the young stage, in a way. The, the strength of the art scene begins with the educational institutions here in Amsterdam, begins with academies, begins with Riesveld Academy, begins with the ateliers and with the Rex Academy. That is the, that's the basic strength of the Amsterdam art scene. And of course, the Stedelijk with its history, with its DNA, with its history of an, of an ever-changing institution, in which always something happened, uh, also that is very important. But the, the first strength is the international young art scene because of the presence of those important academies here in Amsterdam. You described Amsterdam as sort of boring and self-satisfied and happy back when you were a student. If you look at Amsterdam today, what is the biggest challenge for, for the art scene here? The biggest challenge is perhaps also a bit the same challenge as it used to be. Amsterdam is very vivid, the art scene is very vivid, but the art scene could still be a bit more international. And the young art scene is international because of the young residents at the Rijks Academy, Ateliers, but also at the Rietveld, all those young students and, and the rest of Holland. 
but also on the gallery level, for instance. Uh, we have very good galleries in Amsterdam, but still there's not too many who also bring a perspective from outside. I must say Stevenson is an, ex is an exception in that sense, and it's an important exception, and we would need more of this, I would say. And, and, and I see possibilities, specifically also after Brexit, uh, I see possibilities for the Amsterdam gallery scene to become a bit more international, internationalized. And are there any artists at the moment you keep an eye on? From the Rijksakademie perhaps, or Rietveld? Certainly, yeah. I found an artist lately who I bought one work from, and I didn't know first that she was at Rijks Academy, but somebody told me he had seen her work at Wheels in Brussels, and then I had a thorough look at it, and then I, I got very interested, and then I found out she was here, at, she's still at the moment here at Rijks Academy. So what resident. is her name? We are curious now. Simnikiwa Bolungu. I, I bought this one video piece uh, of her. Of the kite? Of the Spike Lee piece, okay. yeah, rolling a joint, yeah, yeah, not yeah, the kite. Yeah. The kite, yeah, yeah, yeah. the kite she made during uh, during the first That's lockdown right. at oh, COVID. Wow, yeah. I have no idea. But the other piece is older, and and she came here. I, I asked her. I approached her then to buy it, and she wanted to know in what context we would bring it. Uh, I was very positively surprised by that question of her. So we 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 spoke for one hour about. Uh, this was in the period in which the, just after the, the George Floyd situation and the focus on Black Lives Matter. So she was very interested to hear from me how to frame it because it, it is a piece about, about people of color also. So I'm bringing back the conversation a little back to the Dutch art scene. Yeah. Uh, is there a narrative of museums in the Netherlands you see evolving? A narrative which is evolving. I see a lot of things happening in Dutch museums, and I see there are different narratives. There is the narrative in Dutch museums which Charles Escher started at the Van Abbe Museum, probably, in terms of inclusion, in terms of multivocality, in which for a long time the Van Abbe Museum and the Museum Arnhem were the only museums in, in Holland who really worked on that, I would say. And now the bigger museums are also looking at that. Also we as the state look. And, but I feel years behind, in a way, behind Eindhoven and Arnhem in that sense. There are other narratives. Of course, there is much more interest for socially engaged art, which is not only in Holland the case, but which is somewhere in the air everywhere, I would, I would say. And we are also on this train, in a way, as uh, as Stedelijk. I see a lot happening in, in Dutch museums, but at the same time, we are all still very different, and that's what we what we should also try to remain in the future. Would you say it's probably still the case that some of the smaller regional museums sort of take the lead on particular issues and then the bigger institutions follow? Yeah, but that's not only in Holland the case, I think, but, but quite clear here in Holland, because, I mean, like the museum in Arnhem already is, is different since, since 30 years, I think. The, the 80s and 90s, the only the mostly collected women artists, and, and nobody did this in, in the rest of Holland. And in the rest of the world, there were not many museums who did this. So this, this was extremely special and, and important, I think. But it's uh, the institutions which are a bit smaller and a bit in a 
maybe in an urban situation which is maybe a, a bit less focused on art economic, cultural economical factors in which this, this works better? And which come first then? There's considerable cultural anxiety about mixing art and commerce. Um, I wonder if you've warned your sponsors that there's going to be a Hito-style show. <laughs> what, how, what is your perspective on, on the worlds of art and, and commerce and capital and how they interact? It, it's very interesting. In Holland, art and commerce was always something we did not fit together. In the old days, we always said this is like Holland being a Protestant country in comparison to other countries in which there were more connections. After things changed uh, dramatically in Holland in terms of subventions, in terms of public subventions, we as museums, we all had to work as cultural entrepreneurs next to being funded by the public case. That brought a lot of changes and that brought a situation in which we came nearer to commerce as, uh, as a museums. Still, I think it's very important that we have an, an, a, a set of ethical rules in which we can move as museums and in, to which we should confine ourselves. And we, we thought a lot about that the, the last months and we set up a set of rules for, for, for the museum after what happened a few years ago and which the museum was accused of uh, a few years ago. So there is a difficult connection between art and commerce and we should be careful as museums, but we cannot deny that they are all part of a system. Accused and cleared, I would add. Accused and cleared, yeah, but this cleared is not clear for everybody yet, which is, which is still the problem. So, Rijn, also uh, considering your age, there will be a time for you to step down, and what advice? <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. There will be a, a certain moment. So what advice would you give to the next generation of aspiring museum directors? Every museum director should create a change and everybody should do uh, things different than before. That is also part of the new definition of, or should be part of the new definition of, of museums, I think. I, I, we need to be very flexible institutions. And there are people who say that yeah, but you as a state, like you are a Western European institution. So first of all, think about the, the Western European heritage. But what is Western Europe these days? And Western Europe is completely different than it used to be also in terms of people living in Western Europe and, and working on, on in, in Western Europe. So the museum has to change, has always to change, and we must have the open-mindedness to, to go on with this. So I, I would like to see successes much being much more flexible. But let's try and keep the museum independent in a way, and let's try and keep it as a dynamic tool. You know why we're here? No, tell us. We, we were wondering, look at, actually. Look at the name of this house. Look at the number. Brauerskracht 196. Oh, yes, indeed. It's uh, called the Apple, that house. And that is called the Apple since uh, the 17th century. Really? And this was the first location of uh, the art center, the Apple. 
Really? Yeah, they started it here in 1975. We Smalls started it with some other people, and one of them was also Ulai, for instance, who mm -hmm. we just had a had a large exhibition with, a big exhibition with. And this was the first location of the Apo. The did first not know location, that. Uh, let's say, probably one of the first uh, institutions who also started to work with contemporary art next to the Stadler Museum, you know, apart from, apart from commercial galleries. So for me, it's an important location here. And uh, it's, it's, uh, the name is written just in a very simple way, in a way, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's weird why, because now you never ask yourself why this institution is called the Apple. Indeed, huh? I, I have <laughs> never names are, the uh, names, names are found, you know. I wonder so how many Bra of Bra the Brauer's Graft 196. I remember, I always remember the beginning of the apple, although I was not, never at this location, but for me the apple is uh, this part of the city. And that when we, walk, when we walk further, we come to a second location of the apple. That's a nice building, huh? A lot of history here in Amsterdam with these kind of buildings, with mm. these kind of warehouses. Uh, and in the 70s, 60s, 70s, these warehouses were, this was the moment that the warehouses started to be reused in another way, you know, and people started to make lofts out of them a bit later. It's also the beginning of, let's say, a gentrification in Amsterdam a bit. But this is, sometimes you, you, you in life you're always looking for names when you, uh, when you are founding an institution or things like that. And sometimes the name comes by this kind of coincidence. And it was, um, it was the family was called Apple who had this, uh, who right. had this, uh, this warehouse here. I hear you can get a sense of what they look like inside. But you still uh, have a, a working relationship with the Apple, isn't it? We have a working relationship. I have a working relationship with the Apple. I always admired the Apple, and it, it, it has always been a very important institution, also next to the Stedelijk. As, uh, as the, the, the apple is, is mythical in a way, with uh, we Smalls who founded it and uh, died uh, uh, later in, a, in an uh, air crash when they were uh, looking. We go to the right. To yes. the right? Well, yeah, just a few houses further is the Mondrian Fan. Oh, yeah. Where yeah, spent, that, and, and those offices. Where right. all of, a lot of us, and uh, me too, we, I spent also hours and days there, <laughs> like being a member of a committee, yeah. judging <laughs> over, the, uh, over the entries of uh, young artists. And deciding our, who and gets money and who also, doesn't. Deciding who gets money, who gets a grant, and those kind of things. Yeah? In, in the Netherlands, we have quite a unique system, because up here, the arts and culture is still very much largely funded by the government. So therefore, it's um, different than it used to be, but the government is still strong. We still have to be, in a way, happy with it. But uh, 10 years ago, things changed. And we're not only dependent on government anymore. We have to do a lot of search from, for additional money also. They call it like cultural uh, ondernemerschap. Entrepreneurship. Uh, entrepreneurship. Cultural entrepreneurship, yeah. So did it change for the better also, maybe, perhaps? Um, it's... For the better, I would not say, but there is another kind of responsibility which grew. And uh, in some cases it's good, but it's also difficult. Um, you know, governance can also be difficult because we work with cultural governance. And when you uh, are also working with uh, private enterprises, you, uh, you step into another governance kind of world. And sometimes this can, this, this, this can come to a conflict. I like the Harlem Dyke and the Harlem Strat mm. also, I must say. It's, uh, I go and chop there uh, 
I do my, I go to my supermarket there also. So, Ryan, we're walking around here, I would say, uh, more or less in the Jordaan area of uh, Amsterdam. Yeah, we're just and stepping outside of the Jordaan area now. But let's say the Brouwersgracht was still, let's say, the border of the, of the Jordaan area. Yeah, we step out of the Jordaan area and we walk now to the islands, to the Western Islands, who were made, who, who came to existence in the 17th century, in the early 17th century. Three islands where, where there used to be water, where used to be the River Eye. They made, uh, they poldered them, as we call it now in Holland. They made uh, land out of them. But we did a show of Paul Tech, which came from uh, Rotterdam, came from Witte de Wit, and is now called Melly, uh, Kunstinstitut Melly. Chris Derkon uh, curated it then. And we brought it to, uh, to Zurich, to Migros Museum, where I was director then. And we did it together with the Kunsthalle Zurich uh, in that in that moment, in 1996. And um, we also showed the Fishman of Paul Tech, which is hanging on the, on the ceiling and, and like made under a table. So it's hanging underneath a table, hanging on the ceiling. And uh, this was in fact being produced by Paul Tech on the Princeton Island. Really? I didn't know Because that the either. Stedelijk used to have a, a studio space at, on the, on the on the, um, on, the, on the Princeton Island. And I'm still looking, we are still searching what was the exact number of that, but we didn't find it up till now, but probably we will find uh, the house number. And uh, Paul Tech was working there in the, uh, in 69. We were also walking behind, uh, besides, uh, I would say, um, decorum like Ed van der Elske. Young yeah. men and women walking around. That's th with this, these are Ed van der Elsken photos. That's true. You 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 say so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, this is the biggest island where we walk now, but we go to the Princeton Island. So now we are here at number seven, and number seven of the Prince Island was the second location of the Apple. <laughs> this was the second location. They went here. Uh, I checked it before. They went here in 1984, and during that time, already uh, Saskia Bos was director there. And Saskia Bos was director until about 2006. This was a location I, I visited also in, in that period. And these are locations where, for instance, also uh, Abramovich and Ulai did, um, did famous performances in that lo this location, but also on the Brouwersgracht. They lived also uh, around this area. They had several addresses here. And uh, this, was, uh, this was very strong. When Saskia took over the, the Apple, the Apple became even more like uh, part of the international scene, I would say. I used to be very interested in, in philosophy and aesthetics. Is there still enough mystery in Amsterdam for you to, to discover in a way? There's still a lot of mystery. And it's, it's, it's really necessary to keep up the mysteries. That's what we as, a, as, as, as cultural workers are for also to keep the mysteries alive. When I see a Malevich painting, there is still a, uh, there's still a lot of mystery inside. And to I can't explain it completely. And this is also what, I, what I try to convey to people when, uh, when I speak about, uh, about those kind of works. Yeah, it's not written black on white, like on a piece of paper. We try to think, to, to, bring, to think things together also sometimes. That's also our profession as uh, art educators, uh, as art workers, to, to think things together, to build them together, but to, 
to make bridges for the mind also. Yeah, you also told us that um, water had an important role in your life, or it still has in a way? The water is very Heraclit-like, eh? it's always floating. And this floating aspect of, is also the, the floating of, of ideas and the floating of, uh, the floating of concepts. So there is something in, in the water and there is, uh, there is mystery in the water also, yeah? And we need this. It's, it's li a life-spending uh, material, huh? Not in the sense that we need to drink it, but also in the sense that we need it around us. And that's a, that's a, big, that's a big part of the quality of Amsterdam. You often walk home from the central station People once you get you. home. We've got sources. Oh, yeah. pa past the water of, of the eye. Can you describe that walk for our listeners and why you like it? Yeah, well, I bought a bicycle, uh, so I now cycle more often. But when I come back by train, I quite often walk back along the River Eye. I like that walk. I like the River Eye. I like also walking. I like to, to keep a, a bit in shape also. So a few things come together. And, and you look at your iPhone and you see the number of steps you made, which is uh, something, <laughs> something important also to calculate in a way. One of the questions we always ask our guests is, what is your favorite spot in the city? Well, you just asked me that I uh, walk quite often past the water of the River Eye, and uh, basically that is my favorite spot in the city. And I also live on, on the River Eye, and I, have a, I, I, I like it very much. I like water very much. I, I grew up not far from the Meer. I lived twice in my life very near the River Rhine in Switzerland and in Germany. And I lived in Rotterdam near the river Schie. And I, I like this river. And I like this river feeling. I like the water. So water had an important role in your life. It's more or less similar to uh, Remy Jungerman, actually, mm. which I yeah. noticed. Yes. Ah, yeah. He really likes the landscape of Amstelpark. Yeah. So are there any other cultural venues and or events, perhaps in Amsterdam or perhaps uh, in surrounding of Amsterdam, you, you like to visit? I, I like to visit museums mostly, I must say. And I, I came to Amsterdam and a few months later we were in a pandemic situation. I wanted to see a lot of theater here in Amsterdam, which the last years in Germany I also did. And I was able to go to the ITA once only. And then the pandemic came and I saw this piece of Mila Rao, which was a perfect piece, but there's something I miss and I want to I wanna do more again. But I, I like to go and see as much museums as possible. And I like to go on Saturday to see, to see galleries here in Amsterdam. Could you perhaps name a few of the galleries you like to visit? Yeah, well, I, I go and see Fons uh, Welters. I go and see Arnett Gelink, Grim, Stevenson, Ellen de Bruyne projects, but also Sleeuwe Gallery or uh, Lumen Travo or Alberta Jelgesma. I just recently visited for the first time Hama Gallery, which is a new gallery on Wilsparkweg. I go and see shows at Eenwerk uh, by Julius Vermeulen. So I try and get more and more involved in the, in the gallery. I go to Romandos, of course, also, so yeah. So you get your iPhone steps in during the gallery rounds as well? Yeah, I get them when I walk. I get them more than when I cycle, uh, so, but I do both. But are there perhaps some cowboys among those art galleries which are quite perhaps unique in their position or I would say role in their art scene? We keep, must keep an eye on. Well, because of this pandemic situation, it was difficult to, to find really, really new things for me. So 
I, I have to pass in a way. I, I went a bit to also to other institutions, to smaller institutions, to uh, project spaces. For instance, I was lately, I was visiting a rose is a rose is a rose with the nostalgic feeling of going back to the space where the Bureau of Amsterdam used to be. They had this great show of Lynn Herman Leeson, for instance. Also, I saw, I saw an interesting show lately at Project Space on the Inside in, in Amsterdam North, and there's a lot to see in Amsterdam. Frame of Frames, I went recently. I like them. Yeah. They're rookie in, the, in town. Yeah. Could, could you name one artist living and working in the city, not necessarily young, but they could be young, who people might not know, but really should? Well, I thought of Simli Balungu before. She's a resident at, at Rijks Academy. An artist I really like in Amsterdam is, uh, people know her also, it's Nora Turato. So it is quite some, some younger artists in that sense, but of course there's a lot of art. I, I also meet again artists who I remember from being a student here in Amsterdam. And, and we meet again. I, I met recently, uh, oh no, not recently, just some months ago already, I went to an opening of a show by Gerald van der Kaap in Amsterdam North. And I remember the work of Gerald van der Kaap and I know him also still from the period of the, of the, of the 80s when I was a student here. So there's a, very, there's a very interesting mix between younger and a bit older. On to your favorite question, Rubia. So, Rijn, what is your favorite place to eat? So, to go outside, perhaps. Favorite place to eat in Amsterdam is basically a place which is not far from where I live. I, I like very much uh, Buck as a restaurant. Buck. Buck. T t tell us about it. That is uh, Van Diemenkade. That's in uh, the Veem building. They are quite exquisite, but in a way in which the food is, 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 is very good food. It's, it's, you spend quite a lot of hours there, and still it's not done in a too highbrow kind of way. That's what I like. So in, in 2019, the prodigal son returns. We don't know how it works, and we won't ask if you apply or you're headhunted or there's a secret cabal behind the scenes that, that gets you here. But we're curious how you felt the moment you learned you got the job. Do you remember that first day or those first days where you knew you were the next director of the state? Like what was going through your head? What were your hopes, fears? Well, I must say that when I was studying in Amsterdam in the, in the 80s, that I was studying quite often at the library of the Stedelijk Museum. The Art Historical Institute of the University of Amsterdam used to be a few steps from here at the Johannes Vermeerstraat. And we went to study here in the library, which was also half the restaurant of the museum. And I was always there, and I was always walking through the museum then in the, in, in the afternoons. And I quite often said to myself, this is where you want to work at some point of time. And this is where you want to, where you want to have a kind of responsibility also in some kind of time. So for me it was like something which was never a way out of my mind to at one point of time maybe becoming the director of the state. Like, so it, it was a great feeling when, when I found out that I got that job. Who's the first person you called? My wife. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that's about two years ago now since we are, we, are, we are sitting here and I knew that I became the director of the state like in the beginning of May 2019. And then I had to wait about half a year to, to start working here. And given your love for Feyenoord, you like 
institutions that have ups and downs and, and maybe never win the cup, but, but that's, at least that's cause what, some drama along the way. That's what I like. We, like. we like to see institutions and things like human, human beings also. We like, I like to humanize an, an institution I, I'm responsible for. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to our podcast. We thank the Jazz Orchestra of the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam for our podcast tune, Blues for the Date, by Peter Bates. Please check out the rest of their amazing album, Blues for the Date, on Spotify. Art City Amsterdam is produced by Studio Balsam and Stevenson. We are your hosts, Joost Bosland and Rubia Balsam. See you in Amsterdam.